Hello, I'm Dr. Damali Wilson, and this is People, Perspectives, and Policies, a podcast produced by the NYU McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. I'm a project director at McSilver and have a background in parenting, maternal health and mental health, as well as early childhood development. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Aaron Sadler, a psychologist at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C., Dr. Sadler is the co-director of the Mood Disorders Program and the director of Child Parent Psychotherapy Services. Maternal health, especially within Black and Brown communities, is in a state of crisis in America today. A key part of the ongoing health and safety of children and parents is developing better mental health supports during and after birth. How can we bridge the gap in maternal mental health to ensure families understand issues and ways to get the help they need? Dr. Sadler is a leading voice for improving treatment and outcomes, and it is a pleasure to have her join me on this episode of People, Perspectives, and Policies. Thanks so much for your time and for joining us for this really uh, important and I think will be a really interesting conversation. And I know we started with kind of your name and roles and organizations. But if you can really uh, frame this a little bit more, even by telling us some of the experience and expertise that you bring to this work that you do. Well, I'd like to start off by saying that I come from certainly a child background. And so the bulk of my clinical training and interest has historically and still to this day centered around childhood development and that spurred into an interest in early childhood development, infant development, which I quickly learned in my training, both in undergrad and graduate school, that you know, babies don't exist in vacuums. And one of the, the greatest contributing factors is the environment that they are born into. And so from that, I wound up uh, getting some additional training in perinatal mental health after just recognizing how important the caregiving environment is to early childhood development. And so I would say my expertise actually comes in from infant mental health and really thinking deeply about what are some of the the greatest contributors to adverse childhood experiences, what can make or break kind of really, really critical periods in development. And one of those pieces and one of the largest, I should say, is what's happening with caregivers when they are born. And so from there, I, I find myself doing what I consider preventative work as a as an infant mental health person, but really it is finding caregivers where they are and some of the the highest stress of their own adult lives and trying to provide support to help them not only just kind of be the best that they can be, but also be the best that they can be for their children. And knowing that they want to be, that perinatal periods are very, very difficult by themselves. Uh, so that is at least where I start. <laughs> no, I think that's so important. And it's it's funny you mentioned, as I was listening to you, I said further up the prevention continuum, right? And I yes. completely can uh, relate to that, which is also very similarly how I found myself in this work. And also chuckled a little bit because I always say that, you know, working with little people, they're inextricably linked to the big people, yes. right? That is right. And the environments. And so as we work our way, like we say, upstream in that prevention mm-hmm. continuum, it, it, it makes total sense. One of the other things you mentioned is perinatal mental health. And I feel like this is something that very importantly, I think is starting to be heard a lot more, be said a lot more. Yes. But what is it? (laughs) question. Fair enough. Well, what are we talking about when we start there? Um, I I think a lot of the phrasing um, is 
is shifting as we think more critically about what is actually happening during this period. And so I feel like postpartum depression is, is a, a good buzz phrasing. Uh, mm-hmm. People hear it, they kind of feel like they know what we're talking about. But then when we start to hear perinatal mental health, PMADS, um, I think the it kind of muddies the water right now. And so I'm very happy to be able to describe what are we even talking about? Um, and so perinatal mental health, one of the easiest ways of describing it is really taking a close look at the mental health of individuals during a period between pregnancy and postpartum. And depending on who who you're asking and who you're talking to, they may capture that from the point of conception. They may capture it at uh, the point of viability. They may capture it uh, kind of just before delivery. Though I like to get as wide as we can. And so I am a conception through, and I think most folks will push us about 12 months postpartum. So really thinking about that first year of parenthood um, when infants are developing quite a lot. So we capture that whole picture. And for some folks, perinatal mental health is kind of the onset of mental health or mental illness during this period of time. For others, it is they're coming into this perinatal space with a history of mental illness that gets intensified or exacerbated during this period, or in some cases, for some folks, worsening to the point where they're needing extra extra special help. Um, And then we're able to provide that extra support after the fact, (laughs) kind of after the baby's born, finding our way into kind of clinical spaces where we can provide more long-term support too. Thank you. Uh, with that, you also mentioned PMADS. Yes. Which I think is is, is something else that, that is, uh, you know, showing up in the lexicon. What is that and how is it a part of this larger conversation of, of perinatal mental health? It's an acronym for perinatal mood and anxiety disorders that give us kind of an umbrella term for things like postpartum depression, uh, perinatal anxiety, even depending on the health and well-being of folks, some perinatal post-traumatic stress disorder, so PTSD related to pregnancy, labor, delivery, postpartum, um, as well as in, again, other cases, sometimes postpartum psychosis, where there's an extra onset of uh, quite severe symptoms, even some perinatal suicidality that's new and just during this period of time. So it allows us to at least capture a greater breadth of of what some of those mental illnesses can look like and not just depression. Mm, thank you. So we we hear these terms, and like you mentioned, I think a, a lot of people probably hear quite a bit, of probably most readily, like the postpartum depression, mm-hmm. um, or even you 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 hear kind of urban legend, or or now in the age of social media, yes. I'm before that age, um, in a lot of ways. But even on social media, kind of these videos of folks commenting on how the behaviors of of, of pregnant and post people, postpartum people, is 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 weird or strange or different. Um, Is some of that also tied to this and what we're seeing? For sure. For sure. There's, there's so much happening to the body. Um, And I would say even for birthing people and not birthing people, partners to birthing people, the perinatal period in and of itself, it's brand new. Whether we've had one child, two children, kind of each pregnancy, each delivery can look very different. And there's not necessarily kind of a rule book or playbook for what we're experiencing, shifts in hormones, again, for birthing and the non-birthing person. And so when we're thinking about those shifts, it is a direct result of something is happening. (laughs) We are Mm -hmm. growing, (laughs) growing children, um, having a lot of changes in the body, birth, labor, delivery, whether it's vaginal, cesarean, it is 
it is an assault to the body, if you will, <laughs> that there are things that are happening and we are meant to be a little different <laughs> thereafter. And for some individuals, it can be the response to that is stronger than others. And so it is helpful to consider not only kind of the physical health pieces that are happening, but that this is a stressful time and that we want to be uh, gracious in, in, in thinking about how people are responding to it or the effect that it's having on them. Very, very thoughtful um, response. And I, th- I think kind of highlights why this is important to talk about, right? And why, why we're here. I think an, an, another kind of follow-up question to that is, you know, we we hear the term, we hear kind of the anecdotal language or the, you know, satire around it uh, and kind of comedy and, and, and jokes that come up about it. Is it that we are just seeing it or is this something that's really common, right? These, these experiences of these shifts, is it, is it just a few people and it makes the good material or um, are there just these kind of severe cases that maybe Mm -hmm. sometime will make it to the news or, or, or kind of a personal kind of family tragedy, Mm -hmm. or is this really a a very frequent and normal kind of part of of that pregnancy and, and postpartum experience? When it comes to what we consider kind of baby blues, so more of depressive mood symptoms that occur immediately after birth. So thinking about those first couple of weeks after labor and delivery, that there's, what's the new statistic? I think it's somewhere close to 75, 80% of birthing people experience baby blues. And so we're talking about the vast majority. If this were a letter grade, we'd be passing <laughs> that, that it is a pretty substantial amount, especially within that first couple of weeks postpartum. And then after that, and when we're thinking about PMADs, things that are a little bit more clinical are going beyond what we expect for most individuals. The rates are anywhere from kind of one in five to one in four, depending on what the clinical diagnosis is, whether it's anxiety, um, depression. And so if you think if you're in a room full of postpartum people, and again, it's very similar for kind of pregnancy time, so that prenatal period too. Uh, but if you're in a room full of 100 uh, postpartum individuals that nearly a quarter or a fifth of those individuals are likely to be experiencing some version of a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. And so it is, and what actually is even more striking, because I think people hear even some of the medical conditions that happen during, uh, during the perinatal time, like uh, preterm labor, gestational diabetes, um, preeclampsia, these things that we tend to hear in more of kind of a medical physical health model, that perinatal mood and anxiety disorders are actually one of the most common pregnancy complications. Uh, and it's in higher in, in many ways to some of those medical ones that we may hear or worry about or people talk about very um, consistently that it is. I'm very happy that we're in a place where we're talking a little bit more about the mind um, and how it's connected to the body and how both mental health and physical health are tied together. And so really considering how, if we're thinking about things that are more common, it's PMADs more than any of the other stuff in truth. Mm. And so it is incredibly important for us to consider that as well. So when you ask if, if it is really common or if it's kind of hit or miss here and there, no, no, it is far more common than we'd like, uh, than we'd like generally for the field. I would love to be out of a job. <laughs> I want nothing more than to have no work to do. <laughs> right, right. To that point about the um, integration of, of physical mm-hmm. health and mental health, which um, 
again, I think, you know, as we learn more, as we have a better understanding, if as our, our use of language, you know, right, and articulation of, of yes. the things that we know improves, we hear more about this uh, connection between um, physical health and mental health. So can you kind of talk to us about how, you know, perinatal mental health really is a part of the well-being of the the mom or in, in, in birthing people, but also like you mentioned, the non-birthing uh, mm-hmm. partner or in, you know, in some cases, fathers um, or, or even the larger family unit. Yes, happy to. Uh- for for better for worse <laughs> when we're looking even at just symptoms of mood disorders i think it's easier for us to tie in because when we're looking at symptoms often they are very physical in how some of them manifest and so it can look like changes in sleeping patterns changes in eating patterns which we know have a very quick and direct link to our ability to function in the world. If I am hangry moving throughout the day, but also don't have an appetite that my body's not getting the nutrients that it needs by default for the, for the birthing person, the fetus is not getting the nutrition that it needs. And so it is a quick, it's a quick one too, between what's happening on the outside for the birthing person. And then what's happening on the inside for the fetus. And then separate from that, depending on activities that we're doing, energy can drop pretty quickly with, and I'm thinking more specifically around depression. So whether it's during pregnancy or um, postpartum, that the amount of energy that one has tends to decrease pretty substantially interest in doing activities, whether it's getting out to see friends, things that really do fill up that joy cup, um, reduce a lot. And And so unfortunately, I say depression eats on itself, (laughs) where if I don't have the energy to do the things that I need to do that are going to help me improve or get healthier, then I'm not likely to improve and get healthier. And so it is, it's a tricky one. It can be very tricky. And and then similarly within the family unit, just the same. Um, Thankfully, we have increasing data on what's going on for at least paternal mental health. So thinking about fathers within this time period as well. That I think the rates are somewhere close to 10 to 15% of, of dads during the perinatal period are also experiencing some version of depression or mood disorder. And unfortunately, uh, one of the greatest risk factors for fathers is actually maternal depression. And so if we know that the rates are super high for the moms in the situation, uh, it also bodes not so well for the dads, just the same. And so if both units are experiencing these symptoms, again, no one's really getting up and going. Sleep is really not great. We're not seeking our social networks to you know, get fulfilled, get the joy. Eating is off. It, it can make for a really tough um, dynamic and a tough space for for the unit to lean on each other to even be able to get extra support that pushes them out of, of kind of this state. And again, the trickle down, <laughs> trickle down for the babies is is quite quick, just the same. So again, if if we're not moving, if I don't have the energy to, um, I hear you crying, but like I'm over here. I'm also not doing well. Can I, how are we thinking about the, the support that caregivers who are also experiencing pretty considerable symptoms able to help the, the babies who are also needing them? Oh, it's, it's difficult. It is very difficult. Absolutely. I think also what I hear um, in, in, in what you just shared 
it's tied to what we talked about on the top of the call, right? And recognizing mm-hmm. that the the child is inextricably linked from yes. the, the parental unit, but mm-hmm. also the members of the family are linked to each other in that way, yes. right? Yes, indeed. And their physical and mental health of each person mm-hmm. <laughs> are linked within that person, but again, also with, with within the family unit. Yes, indeed. Um, so thank you. I feel like you've done such a great job <laughs> of, of laying out for us, you know, what is going on, mm-hmm. what it means when we hear perinatal mental health, why it's important. Um, let's talk about now, what do we do about it? Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, prevention folks, we love to figure out how we not have the problem, but also when we can identify the problem, how do we get to those solutions, right? So what are some of the strategies and therapies that we know uh, support positive outcomes in, I I would say the moms, but the moms as well as the the family unit? I think if we are zooming into the, the unit, the family unit in and of itself, we are very fortunate to have fantastic for those who are needing more clinical support. So psychotherapy, we have really tried and true um, interventions around cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal therapy, that's really catered towards the individual who's experiencing the symptoms so kind of helping them um, improve individually. Uh, That being a little bit separate from thinking about the family unit on the whole, that now we've had an adaptation uh, for the child parent psychotherapy, we have a perinatal adaptation for that. And it's a dyadic treatment that is meant to support families who experience some form of trauma. Uh, the original model was primarily towards children who were exposed to trauma. The perinatal adaptation now supports the, the unit and whether it's perinatal trauma to help, again, do some of that preventative work while also considering how the, the parent-infant attachment is going to be quite vital. And so how do we juggle them both at once? So we do have wonderful therapies if we're thinking about individual providers or groups who can provide clinical care to families. We have that. <laughs> but knowing that, while roughly, you know, somewhere upwards of 20, 25% of individuals are going to need that level of care, we still have that 80% roughly who are experiencing baby blues. We still have a large number of families who are adjusting, but again, there's not a, there's not a playbook per se for what do I do when I get home or what am I doing while I am pregnant? Um, I need to work and I can't stop working, but now I'm extra stressed because I did my leave and now I have to get back to work, but now I'm worried about my baby. And so there are, I think, even kind of in as we think about social networks and the, the other systems that individuals are operating in, being very considerate around um, how do we lean into becoming parts of the village <laughs> when we know that people who are either with child or having children, we are a part of their network in some way. And so thinking about as community members, how can we continue to support the people around us? And some of that support doesn't necessarily need to be emotional support <laughs> that they may be getting in therapy. It could be the most practical things. I maybe can't sit with you and, and cry with you, but I make a really great lasagna and I know you need to eat. <laughs> and so, and whether you have an appetite or not, maybe I can sit with you and bring you my lasagna and make sure that you eat it. And my, in the land of whether it's anxiety, depression, stress, trauma, knowing that if it impacts sleep, it impacts um, eating, 
that I know you're fed. <laughs> and, and so regardless of whether or not I am a therapist, I at least know that that is its own special intervention. Or if perhaps I don't make a great lasagna, but I am a great listener. And I actually know two moms over here who had a similar experience. And so now we are having <laughs> a little fireside chat because you need to be around people, even though isolation is kind of something that we may see for a lot of new parents. We know you need to be around people. You need a little sunlight. So maybe we're headed to the park today, kind of figuring out how we, as we are all part of the village, whether or not we have opted in, we are here. <laughs> so really thinking about what we can do for people that are just more practical in that sense. If we zoom back actually to what we really spoke about early is thinking about the, the perinatal period and what that looks like, knowing that we have places where individuals, whether it's providers in the community, groups, organizations in the community have touch points for families from this point of conception through that first year. And really thinking about where are families going? <laughs> Who are they talking to? Where are they seen? Children, I mean, on the, the child side of my job, many children don't make their way to my office until, you know, three, four, five, when they are met with daycare workers or teachers who say, hey, <laughs> we may need some extra support. Um, but if we dial it back and try to think about where families, what types of systems that they're running into, especially systems of care within that conception to 12 months, we can find ways of really integrating and weaving in opportunities for not only just recognition. And so uh, right now there's a large movement for integrated uh, primary care where there's universal screening happening, not only for children, but for caregivers of infants in primary care settings, because we know that once a birthing person has their child, they have their six week checkup and then do they see <laughs> their OB or gynecologist again within that first year? Give or take, it can vary quite a bit. Um, but we do know that these new caregivers, especially those who are um, doing well, who are able to get their children or have the opportunity to get their children to all of those visits within the first year of life, that these are touch points and opportunities to not only say, hey, yes, sure, we're here to make sure that Sally is doing well at four months, but we also know that this is a difficult time for you. And, um, and one statistic that also sits in the back of my mind is knowing that even postpartum depression, that we tend to see um, the rates increase kind of in that latter portion of that first year. And so while there's a lot of touch point happening early, early on postpartum, that we start to trail off what the adult touch points look like, and it's primarily child, and the rates are likely a little bit higher at that point in time. And so we have unique opportunities to ensure that families and caregivers are being met with. By default, we know this is stressful. By default, we know that you are likely experiencing something. And so how do we, as a system, feel comfortable, confident, and competent in assessing it and then making sure that you have the resources that you need? And so I say that from the medical perspective, but again, families are everywhere. They are at the grocery store. We are at food banks. We are at, um, we are in all sorts of places. And so how can we set up kind of those systems to also be safe havens of sorts or spaces where we feel comfortable acknowledging what we already know is true, which is this is a hard time. And then how can we practically be helpful for you, emotionally be helpful for you, uh, just socially be supportive of you with and for you. And so that's one super zoom out. And then the, the last little bit is around policy and how we can do that in a way that is that works with the the larger systems. And so people have to make money, systems have to make money. And that this is a lot of, a lot of work uh, where we know there's some good numbers out there. I don't know them off the top of my head, but I know that it, we're in the millions and up in the millions as we think about 
lifelong costs of these conditions. And so lifelong costs for adults, for children who are experiencing, even infants who are experiencing depression, anxiety, um, experiencing trauma, that over the course of their lives, this is very costly to us <laughs> as a nation. And the people that really consider the numbers should also consider that too. It is costly over the lifetime. And while we may not see the impact in dollars immediately, um, sure, I had to spend $5 to do this thing, or, or maybe it's, we're only getting back a small amount of money, but we're not spending millions across the lifetime, um, even if it is not overly helpful for the bottom line right now at face value. Um, it makes it difficult for us to be able to grow these systems um, because I know that at the end of the day, you may not just really see the financial benefit, even though we know the benefit socially and emotionally. That was, uh, I think, perfect because it allows us to see from an individual standpoint mm -hmm. into the societal standpoint, frankly, mm -hmm. right? Where it's not just the person experiencing it, but what happens to one of us and mm -hmm. multiple of us, right? Because we know these are, are common occurrences will uh, impact the sum total of us. So I heard coverage, right? Making sure there's access to care yes, through that postpartum period, mm -hmm. right? I heard screening, I heard reimbursement to make mm -hmm. sure that these <laughs> screenings, that these therapies, that these models of care and these strategies that we know support young people, that support families are appropriately compensated so the, the systems can continue. I heard, you know, early learning, right, as a, a, a way to support families in these, these vulnerable periods. And then also to your point about um, policies, and I know uh, this might get us a little bit further than we plan to go today, but I think it's so important to spend a little, a little bit more time on, but you mentioned the costs to us, right? And without the dollar amount, I think it's important to to really speak a little bit more about, mm -hmm. hmm, wait, this is costly to us, but like cost, why, why is this costly? And I think sometimes we don't think about these things, right? So you mentioned that the experience of mom, even the, the family unit, but also some of these intergenerational impacts that contribute to the cause. Mm -hmm. Without the numbers, can we talk a little bit about some of those, I think, kind of consequences and, and potential areas of concern? Because I think it's important to kind of highlight with that, that it's not just the financial costs, right. right? But the the social expense of it all. One, one of the first things that comes to mind is, as we think about child development, so I think that may be I think it's a, it's a lovely point where people can really get around. Everyone loves the kids. And so if you think about you know, what, what do we hope for children as they are growing and learning and developing and, and thinking about how we want them to be able to exist in the world and what we know about how children learn and develop when it comes to developing um, social relationships or understanding relationships, understanding their own emotions, um, having the ability and, and I say opportunity, it's really ability plus opportunity to get into a classroom and feel ready to learn and ready to sit and, and like, we're just here to learn. I don't have to actually worry about extra stress that no one wants stressed children. And we know that the early learning stems from those early parent-infant relationships. And, and so the cost, at least socially, emotionally, developmentally, is 
we're chipping away at it really, really early um, to no fault of their own adults, adult caregivers who are experiencing mental illness don't always have the same ability to be available emotionally for children. They don't have the same ability to um, provide what we consider just modeling even um, that when we are not feeling well, we I am a very animated talker. I'm a very animated, I, I'm a hands talker by default. And so it is very clear what I am experiencing when I am talking. And for individuals who are experiencing, whether it's anxiety, depression, that those, those animations tend to be muted. And, and so for young children who are attempting to learn how to read a space, learn how to respond to stress, that if the, the caregiver who is going through their own challenges aren't available in the same way to teach through modeling, sheer modeling, not explicit learning because infants are not like, oh, yes, you said, and then I turn my head to the left. Okay, got it. You know, we are, they are visual learners and visually um, it can be a little bit more challenging. And so when we're thinking about even just co-regulation that young infants are needing caregivers to help them soothe. Um, and that can be more difficult for individuals who are experiencing a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder, uh, regardless of what part of the umbrella that it falls under. So even at, when we're thinking about just the general cost of just the social emotional development, that when these children are moving into those daycare settings, like I mentioned before, or going into the classroom and what can happen again, not the, not the full rule, but what can happen is that we have children who are less prepared for what to do in these social dynamics where now my peer has taken my crayon. What am I supposed to do about that? <laughs> I really wanted it, but now I am um, appropriately figuring out how to solve this conflict. And then am I crying? Am I hitting? Am I not doing anything? Am I now too passive? And, and so we may find children who are still trying to learn a lot of these social rules. Um, and it can just be made a little bit more difficult. Um, it can be, and I say can. <laughs> And not always the rule. And then we think about what that can look like in the teen years, into young adulthood, and, and then into adulthood once again. And we know that from both a social standpoint, but then even genetics that unfortunately the genetics are in there too. So there is a genetic predisposition for experiencing depression, anxiety into childhood just by having this experience in, in, in the home environment in truth. Yeah, I, th I think it's a really helpful illustration, though, mm -hmm. right? Because um, you think about infants and, and toddlers, and mm -hmm. it is such a, a, a small window of time of the lifespan. But for better or for worse, what mm -hmm. we do know is that it is such a, a critical or sensitive time for development because it, it, it sets a lot of the, the groundwork throughout the lifespan. Right. Um, so I think that uh, that example, as mm -hmm. you said, it's just one example, but I, I think it's a really demonstrative example of, of, of what we're talking about and what it, how it translates to mm -hmm. continued health and development. Mm -hmm. Yeah, over time. Sure. Um, again, in, this can be from 
kind of your experiences, you know, in, in the clinic and in, in, in hospital settings, but what are some other challenges, right, that families are facing? I, I think sometimes um, some of us can be siloed in our work and in sure. some of our thought. And you mentioned earlier, right, we know that life is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just name some of those those other parts of life that, that also um, are impacting uh, mental health here? Thankfully, where I'm currently working, there is a large push right now to, in addition (laughs) for some universal screening that we're doing, finding ways of integrating universal screening around social determinants of health for a lot of our children. And so when we can think about all of the the pieces of the puzzle that are happening around children, around families, or even just if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, <laughs> I can't be too worried about how I'm feeling right now. If I need to actually practically be worried about, um, am I having housing insecurity, food insecurity? Um, can I even get to the the places where I'm getting the healthcare? <laughs> am I having barriers to transportation? And so I think some of those things that may actually prioritize themselves higher than and sure, yes, I can go for a walk today, but I need to make sure these other things are taken care of, that those pieces seem to come into play, especially in the work that I do and in thinking about how, again, for myself, the systems of care can be supportive in having resources available to allow families to then say, okay, that I know is taken care of. And then I also know I need to take care of my own mental health. Um, and so what really comes to mind for myself is all of the social determinants of health and, and how they will take precedent necessarily. So um, over maybe some of the work that I'm doing and, and then running into kind of where the gaps and resources that are available in the community, where are gaps in resources that are available in the setting that I'm in to increase access to the community, um, community resources. Yeah, for sure. And then let's take it outside of the hospital mm-hmm. now. Right. And, and so someone the, themselves, mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm just not quite feeling like myself or, um, like you mentioned the example, the village, right. You have a friend that you've known for a while and you're just kind of observing them and they don't seem like themselves. Um, what are some things that they can either do? I know you talked about the village before, but also, you know, resources or, um, education that, that you would recommend that they, they start with. Well, one, I would say always do not be afraid to ask um, or to observe. And I, I find that especially for friends, family members, where there is a lot of trust and a lot of res- mutual respect, that sometimes it's far easier for someone who knows you very well to say, I know you very well. And versus myself, who I'm new to you. <laughs> I've been told that this is probably not <laughs> your typical, um, but it's much easier for not necessarily much easier, but there are cases for sure where the closeness of a relationship or the the familiarity of a relationship can open doors to dear friend, dear family member, dear community member. I see you walking up and down here. This is your typical walk route. We say hello each day. Um, you look different today. You know, what's going on? <laughs> are you okay? How are you doing? Kind of initially asking the question, opening the door to say, it's okay to not be okay. And I am, even if I, again, even if I'm not the person who knows what to do when you start crying, <laughs> I can at least observe this with you and then be there with you to access some of these other supports. Um, and so when it comes to kind of just general education or options, two of my large go-to, well, three really, 
Um, but the Postpartum Support International is one of my fan faves. Uh, they have a ton of resources on their website related to just general education, links to support groups, uh, even providers. And so if someone says, actually, yes, I would like to talk to somebody, that this is an easy way to kind of get in and say they live at XYZ zip code, who's around the town. Um, it can be easy to kind of really directly get linked. If they say, no, I don't want to talk to one person, I actually don't want to leave the house. So maybe we need some online support groups that the options are plentiful um, through there. And, and so that's one of my more fan favorites, just because they've definitely developed uh, a site that is very, very user friendly. And then the Maternal Mental Health Leadership Alliance, they have a ton of resources very similarly um, and both curated they are the full systems. And so we're going from individual all the way up to policy. And so they, they have resources uh, that abound just the same there. Um, and then the National Perinatal Association very similarly has a lot of resources that again span that full perinatal period and some connections to um, local providers and things like that as well. And so I think when it comes to the individual support, these are really great resources. And then outside of that, I think on the practical side, um, it can be tricky depending on where families are, but trying to find access to some of those, again, community resources that may surround like food and, and housing. If all those fails and we don't know anything, <laughs> like I don't know what to do, uh, there are helplines. <laughs> so Plus Art and Support International, you call them up and say, I have a friend, I have a family member, um, kind of what do you what do you suggest? And, and those helplines, while they're, the soft lines are meant to be quite supportive to the individual. Again, these are resource individuals who know the resources that exist. And so they can certainly be great links to something that might be fruitful for, for the family or the unit. Thank you so much. Uh, what I really love about what you shared as well is that there were multiple options. Mm -hmm. Right. There's there's not just one. There's not just one way. There's not just one option. Um, and it, it, it can be tailored to, to folks needs and also the support person kind of comfort. Right. Like you're saying, like, maybe I do really well with the lasagna. And I do well with that. My lasagna is actually really, really good. Um, <laughs> maybe it's the lasagna and, and, and or maybe it's the walk or maybe it's the I, I can absolutely get on this website and, and I can find this for you, you know, with the, the virtual option or in person. And so really finding what, what works for your, for your needs. I think that's so important. So thank you so much for highlighting, I think, the richness of, of, of that um, and what that can look like for, for um, folks that need it. And then where I want to just open up now, is there anything else <laughs> that we haven't covered that you think is, is, is important to highlight? I, I think not that we haven't covered it, but to reiterate that we are a community of people that are that do have a responsibility to one another. And even if that is just kindness. <laughs> and so um, at, at the, the most basic level, kindness is so long as we know that we are being kind to each other or gracious and kind of extending grace when we can, that we know we are at least contributing to health and well-being in that capacity. And so there are certainly ways that we can continue to think about the people that are around us and what they may need, how we can be useful to them and maybe the lasagna and maybe the walk. Um, if we can think about doing these things with intent. Um, and so I know many of us, like I'm a kind person 
by default. No, I am a kind human, um, but I, I find being very mindful of the kindness and the grace that we are extending allows us to really, I think, see new opportunities to do so when we may not notice them otherwise. Um, so really being mindful of how we are supporting one another out in the in the world that we must exist in together. And so knowing that we can contribute to health and well-being just by sheer kindness, I think is what I'll just reiterate, if nothing else. <laughs> Well, Dr. Sadler, kindness, I cannot argue, is, is, is the perfect place to end. So thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This has been People, Perspectives, and Policies, a podcast produced by the NYU McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research. To learn more about the Institute, please visit mcsilver.nyu.edu. Thank you for listening.